guys, we're in the middle of the pandemic and these are trying times. It's hard on our mental health, our mental state. And this is why I love our sponsor today, BetterHelp. They're the largest online counseling platform worldwide. They change the way people get help with facing life's challenges by providing convenient, discreet, affordable access to licensed therapists. BetterHelp makes professional counseling available anytime, anywhere, through a computer, tablet, or smartphone. It's brilliant. Sign up today. Go to betterhelp.com backslash solving healthcare and get 10% off sign up fees. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation. <laughs> Look at you. Oh, uh, I'm going to preface this by saying, first of all, today was exhausting. Um, but yes. it was exhausting. Um, couple, you know, we do, doing our best to advocate for the Ontarians and Ottawaians of the city and, and, and talking about how we should be approaching COVID-19. So I actually asked my colleague, Dr. Tom Saris, to come on today to talk about the latest, the latest news coming out of, of uh, Ontario that we're going into a further lockdown, what do we call it? further restrictions. Basically, you're not allowed to leave your closet um, and uh, some other restrictions that are coming through. Um, and yeah, I was just so frustrated. I needed a partner to discuss this on and talk about hope because, you know, the MO that we've had on this show on this platform is saying positive. And I still think we, we, we could uh, stay positive, but um, we got a bit of an uphill battle. So Dr. Tom Saris, intensivist, internist, father of three, I'm going to call him hockey dad enthusiast. Welcome back to the Quadcast. Well, I'm, I feel very welcome, except there's no hockey right now, so I, I feel like a part of my soul has died, but that's okay. Yeah, and you can't play it even – are you allowed to play it? No, I, I mean, I, I like watching my kids right now more than me kind of playing, yeah. but – Absolutely. Anyways, it is what it is, right? That's the least of our worries. Yes, that's, that's good. A little perspective. You're going to be coming a little bit of more of an optimistic angle than me. Okay, so tell me, what were your first thoughts when the uh, – you heard – Premier Ford come to the panel uh, and tell us about the latest measures. Okay. So no matter the, any, any way we kind of spin it, I know we want to take a positive uh, view of life and and I know your motto is to, to try and, you know, you look at things the way you can control things, right? You can't control certain things and, and we can't control some things no matter which way we face it from a, from a purely ICU hospital bed situation. And obviously we're ICU docs and, and, and we, we understand this, the sanctity of life and, and, and the soul, you know, there, we're in a, we're in a tough position in Ontario from a perspective of what's going on. Right. Um, and 
and and all kind of forecasts, uh, especially around Toronto um, and the surrounding areas uh, and in many other parts of especially Western Ontario um, look like they are uh, heading towards difficulty from a perspective of uh, ICU beds and also long-term care homes have been significantly impacted. Um, I mean, I think 100% of people agree with that. I don't think there's, there's, there's discussion with regards to where we can do things differently with respect to, uh, or think about it differently. Um, unlike our neighbors in the South, um, I think the general consensus, um, I think 99% of the public understands, we're not having the, the kind of same discussions as I think our American colleagues have, where they had to um, essentially kind of convince the narrative was to the narrative was to try and convince the public that there was a problem uh, to, to many parts of the degree, and then um, instead of having conversations about how best to kind of look at this as a holistic approach, which I know you're an advocate of, uh, people started getting you know two camps, right? Uh, mask, no mask, open, no, no open, Jon Snow declaration after the Great Barrington declaration. I mean, it was almost kind of like Star Wars, right? Like the good and the evil, whichever way you wanted to, to look at it from whose perspective. I don't think we've had to ha fight that same battle. I think our population um, and our, uh, you know, the general population and the medical population, if you'd like to call it that, has, has had a, a much different approach. So I don't think we've had to battle that. So I think what we're here to do a little bit today is kind of like discuss that. So where are we here in Ontario from my perspective? Um, this has been tiring for everybody, right? And we've kind of done the yo-yo thing for a while. Um, kind of shut down, locked down, not locked down, what have you. And to be very honest with you, I don't know how I kind of feel today, right? Like I've had a lot of mixed emotions with regards to things. Um, I think from my standpoint, um, I think it's, I'll say a, a few things. Number one, I don't think it's easy being a politician, no matter where you are in this, in this world right now, because I think with social media and I think with everybody's different opinion, people are siloing in camps. And I think that's one of our biggest problem. I don't think there's respect in differing opinions. I'm seeing more and more of that uh, in social media. Um, and that concerns me, even amongst academic um, kind of discourse. Um, and so where we are today, um, I think we, in some sense, haven't dealt with many of the issues that cause um, COVID spread. Preach. Um, pardon me? I said preach. preach. Like, I'm, yeah, I'm you know, I mean, you. you know, we're, we're in a state of moralization right now. There's some, there's some much smarter people who are into philosophy and, you know, I dabbled in it a little bit in, in undergrad and I enjoy kind of reading books like that, but we're moralizing everything right now from CEOs traveling to uh, taking your dog on a 1.1 kilometer walk. I mean, I understand the importance of what I said first, right? There's, there's, there's an essence of, and I agree with that leadership and everything like that, but we have to be careful not to extend it to, you know, seeing some kids, uh, playing hockey at the park, uh, like four of them, and uh, and then calling their parents up and calling the principal and, and and the like. I think we have to be careful as a society, right? It's a bit of a slippery slope. You, I think legit we're at risk of that, though. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. We're, we're like, and, and part of it, you know, I think 
part of it's understand. I mean, a lot of it's understandable. Like I, I, the one thing I'll preface everything that I'm going to say here today is that I'm looking at this from an academic slash. Um, I'm not looking at this so much as an intensivist, although I, I, I'll tell you, I'll, we'll discuss why I think we we are entitled to our opinion in this situation. But you know, it's it's uh, I understand why society is here, right? But people are frustrated. People get their news from a lot of different angles. Um, I think there's been a lot of um, poor quality uh, news, to be very honest with you, with regards to the way things are portrayed. Um, we haven't had a chance to discuss kind of like issues like long-term care in depth. We haven't had time to, or, you know, you don't see that platform, um, in my opinion, right? Like there's five minute interviews, 10 minute interviews, but to actually kind of, you know, every day I turn on the, the, the media and, and, and I hear the death toll, right? And that's draining to people, right? I mean, I'm an ICU physician. I respect life. I get it. I, I've made it my life's passion to try and save lives. But I think the way you portray things, the way you actually, you know, when you do that, people just get emotionally tired, right? And they feel like they don't have an out. Um, and I think we have to be careful because then, you know, we don't have a cohesive kind of approach to this from a federal level, right? Like, I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to talk badly about federal, provincial colleagues or anything like that. But what I'm trying to say is that there's no one kind of robust kind of uh, approach, like you see in some countries, for example. It's, um, there's a lot of bureaucracy in this approach, right? There's a lot of provincial leadership that then doesn't agree with federal leadership. And you're seeing this right now with the vaccines, right? One, you know, they're, 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 they're politicizing it, right? Both sides, right? And I think, and it, they're, they're spinning, right? We don't have enough vaccine. Yes, you do have enough vaccine. You know, and, and people get tired of this, right? And so the way you, you want to control it as a human being, in my opinion, is you start trying to have some control over the craziness that is going around you legitimately, um, and then what, what I think people do is we're at the stage now where the way we're controlling thing is by moralizing everybody's behavior. And I, I just, I, I don't think that's the right, look, I did it at the beginning, right? I have a poor neighbor of mine who who's a good friend and I just, I laid it on thick to him. I think it was in April or March when I saw some, you know, I think, you know, one of his kids playing or something like that. I was, I, I was, I, I, I apologized afterwards. I was wrong. Um, you know, and that's how I, let out my frustration when, when, when I was overwhelmed. Right. So I think we got to be kind of be careful about that. That's all. Those are my two cents about that. Yeah. There's a lot there. Like uh, one thing I, I do want to say is, and just a point of emphasis is, are we approaching this problem? Like are our measures addressing the real issues? And this is where it, it's killing me. Like we're watching Ontario, Quebec, for example, they're doing all these added measures, uh, added restrictions, yeah. and it's not moving the needle. You know what I'm saying? And no one's asking themselves, like an intellectual, and say, yo, why isn't this working? Maybe we need to switch gears. Maybe we need to pivot and approach, approach this completely differently. So you let know? me answer that in a two-part two essay. Do it. Do all it. right. The, the first part is... I know you and I have talked about this when we were rounding at one point, because what I said is what gives us, what gives me and you as an IC physicians a right to talk about public health or policy or what have you. Right. 
Um, as you know, I, I, I'm dabbling at possibly doing a master's in public health. And I was talking about that with you about a couple of weeks ago. I, it interests me right now at this part of my life. Not that I've done you know, 13 years of university. But, but, you know, why are we kind of have a different angle? And then I'll answer the second part. So I think we're, we have a very unique uh, uh, set of skills. Um, number one, we deal with life and death every single day. So high stakes, right? A lot of our decisions are based on high stakes. Two, we're specialists, but we're kind of not, right? We're specialists in that we've done two extra years after our internal medicine or our surgical fellowships or what have you. And so we know how to ventilate, we know how to intubate, we know how to do all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, we're quarterbacks in the IC, right? So we have to take different kind of opinions from, you know, sometimes three or four different specialists, apply it to our patient who has varying degrees of stability throughout the day or week, at times balancing their needs, their uh, rights, their, you know, uh, everything that, you know, everything that's, that's, that's them as a human being and their families, right? And then also what's going on as a, as a, as a, as a, uh, in your overall ICU as a unit, right? And so you're trying to take all those things and then you're trying to balance it to try and make a decision, multiple decisions throughout the day to affect a very high risk outcome, much like COVID from a, from a population level standpoint, right? So we're, we're used to kind of looking at this and saying, no, I kind of don't agree with this. I kind of don't agree with this, but you know, let's try this. And, and, and that's actually very important, I think, because we, we are able to kind of look at things kind of from a dispassionate view sometimes and kind of say, let's calm down. Let's read, let, let's, let's kind of look at all the evidence. And then what we do is we make a decision and we see within 10 minutes, whether or not it's working or not, or an hour later or the next day, start an antibiotic, start a different, different medication to increase the blood pressure, take a different Avenue, get a CT scan. But if things don't work, right. What do we do? We don't just sit there and kind of like give the same antibiotic and give the same antibiotic and give the same antibiotic and then say, well, it's ceftriaxone. I'm not going to give one gram. I'm going to give two grams. <laughs> God forbid I give three grams. Do you know what I mean? So, you know, at Miropendum, right? Okay. So the, the neutron bomb kind of thing, right? So, so the issue that I'm trying to say is, yes, I think we are capable of looking at this. And of course, we're not the, I mean, there's a million stakeholders out there. Um, and so they should give, we just, we're just one person who has our opinion and they, they should have a right to their opinion. And let me add to that uh, too, Tom, we base, we base our decisions on incomplete information all the time. You all know what the I mean? time. All the time. You don't know exactly, you know, someone's crashing. You don't know what the cardiac function might be like. You don't know what's driving the infection, all the, but you make a call based on, uh, all the information in front of you. And then you adjust. If your if your plan A is not working, right. if it doesn't seem like you're about, and then you adjust, there is nothing like that happening in Ontario. Yeah. So and, and so this is what I would say about that. Yeah. And and with regards to adjustment, um, you know, this is a real tough situation because it's almost like we have the same infection on the same patient in different parts of the world, but everybody's got a different approach to kind of dealing with this, right? And everybody, you know, just like as in medicine, everybody thinks their approach is the best way. And then the way we deal with this in medicine is we sit in journal club, right? Mm -hmm. And we dissect a paper into multiple ways. And there's a, there's a person who's got a master's in epi who looks at it one way. And then there's, 
me as a clinician, an educator who looks at it as another way, and then there's somebody else who looks at it another way, and then we argue. But we all eat, you know, uh, you know, Greek food while we're arguing, you know, at least a couple of days ago, a couple of years Kuala ago. From Kuala Lumpur as well, from Kuala and, Lumpur. <laughs> but you understand what I'm trying to say? But that, that's, that's, that's expected, right? That's what we do. Um, but we're doing this live now. We're doing this on Twitter. We're doing this everywhere. And we're doing this, actually, society is getting a glimpse of what we do on a monthly basis or every week basis in Journal Club. Journal Club being like we look at a study and we argue whether or not we're going to give this drug or intervention to a patient of ours. And this amount of disagreement is normal in medicine, right? But when, when, when something's at such high stakes right now, the public is looking at us and saying, oh my God, you guys don't know what you're doing, right? I mean, I, this is the way I look at it because they're seeing us kind of debate whether or not, you know, um, you know, at the beginning, whether or not, you know, uh, high, you know, uh, you know, uh, anti-malarials were working and yada, 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 yada. Right. And, 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 but this is the nature of science, right? Science doesn't take one week to figure itself out. We've had some amazing kind of recovery trial and what have you that has shown us amazing things, but those take time. Vaccines have been an absolute wonder right now, but they, those also took one year, right? Which has been incredible. So, you know, going back to what, you know, kind of what you were saying about everything, right? We do look at this in a different way. This is science playing out. And when it comes to Ontario, what I will say is this. What I will say is, is that I don't propose to have like the answers to all of this. That's the number one thing I can say. But I do respect everybody's opinion. And I do give everybody their say, whether or not I'm reading or talking to somebody. And I've talked to a lot of people about this. And I think that's where we need to go. Because I think what, what's happening now is advocacy is becoming siloing. And advocacy is starting to become, I believe in this. And if I don't want to hear you on this side, I just, I will tune you out or uh, even demonize you a little bit with regards to things, right? And, and, and like, like, you don't know what you're talking about. I really, you know, it's not like I'm going to take the Canadian stance here, but, but I'll kind of go in the middle of a lot of these things sometimes. But what I will say is, what I have seen from everything that I've read from both sides, I hate saying that with, with regards to COVID, but that the people who are more uh, for lockdown and the people who are more for kind of like a, a very general kind of uh, mitigation approach is number one, I think we've, we're, we're in a law of diminishing returns right now with regards to lockdowns, in my opinion, right? I think that, um, I think that we have to, one, I think we have to take society's um, uh, appetite for decreasing their um, their social expenditure, right? All of us need to kind of like feel like we're human beings, right? And I think, I mean, I think people have done a tremendous job, to be very honest with you, across Ontario, right? Our Google numbers may not be perfect, you know, all that kind of stuff, but but I think people need a pat on the back with regards to this, including myself, including you, including everybody. Everybody kind of needs to kind of prop each other up and say, you know what, under the circumstances. I think we've done a remarkable job as, 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 soci as a society and as citizens, right? So I think rather than looking at the 5% that may be quote unquote flouting some rules and so forth, I think the vast majority of people have really tried hard. The other thing that we're seeing is workplaces are becoming a massive uh, place of spread. Um, and the burden of this illness, as we've seen in our intensive care units, has come from uh, people who uh, unfortunately are marginalized, racialized in, in, you know, in our communities, 
and, and, and don't have a uh, high income. People who are essential workers basically have to go to work. They have to take public transit and they have to have exposures, right? And so when it comes to workplace outbreaks, uh, manufacturing, uh, I was reading a stat the other day, I think in, in Toronto has been like 40% of their outbreaks as opposed to restaurants and bars and so forth. Now, I tend to believe that restaurants and bars also are, have obviously, uh, in my opinion, have, have spread anytime you have you know, people in a, in, a, in, a, in a place. And I think it's hard to document that the, the, the way we're kind of going about it. But I also think that we have to kind of look at um, where, uh, where spread is happening for sure. And definitely, if you look at warehouses, if you look at manufacturing, if you look at construction, you look at a lot of places where people really have to go and, um, and they have to make a living. And if they, if they don't show up to work, they don't have the same type of benefits as a lot of other people. Um, they don't have benefits. Are, well, exactly. No, they don't have benefits. You're right. This is what I'm trying to say. They have to go to work, right? Like, and just to illustrate this to people, I've made this point a, a few times. Like, all of, a lot of these people that are on right now, we, we, we're allowed Zoom life, okay? We could work from home, a lot of us. Uh, not everybody, obviously. Like, if you're, you know, a restaurant owner, store owner, a business entrepreneur, like, these are different. But especially when I think of Ottawa, a lot of us have the privilege of staying home and, and still earning a living. But these people, the marginalized communities, the essential workers, even to get tested, you need to take time off. Okay. Right. You need to get time off and that's less money in your paycheck. Okay. Like this is not, this is income not coming to your family. Then you get, say you are positive. Now you got two weeks off without pay. Then I'm just writing someone threw this down on my Twitter the other day. There's people that if you're off for two weeks and they know you got COVID, then you can't come back to work in, in some of these, uh, in some of these environments. Sure. Like it's crazy. So like I've been preaching all day in the news today, paid leave. You need to be able to support these, our citizens when in time of need like this, otherwise you're not taking the even like, you're not dent, You're not putting a dent in the problem. And we know this is a problem. And it's been clear from the get-go. Look, I mean, without getting into specifics, yeah. when you walk in the ICU, the demographics, oh, yeah, yeah. it's like, I'm, and like, oh, this is not, I'm not um, no, no. exaggerating, guys. Like, it's predictable. Not only how, like, there's exceptions always, like everyone's going to sure. give me the one-off or whatever, but older, comorbid, often in the multi-generational home, someone in that house is an essential worker. Okay. And it's, it's like, what would you say on a percentage actually, if even just to give a me 80. Yeah. Like from what I've seen. Exactly. So, so this is what I see. This is what I see in the ICU. So, uh, so multi-generational home, smaller living confines. When you look at like yeah, high uh, rises example for yeah, sure. High rises, smaller living space. Okay. More people within that living space. Um, multiple areas of work in that living space, people who take public transit yep. to go to work, people who can't take time off, people who, um, from, from a work uh, perspective, uh, uh, basically, if they were to tell their employer that I can't go to work, that there's a significant pressure to end up going to work. Remember here, we're not talking about Ebola, right? Like, you get Ebola, you can't go to work, right? <laughs> you, 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 nobody's going to grab you and say, you got to go, like, we're talking about an illness where 25% of it is trans is, is transmitted when you're asymptomatic. 
right? Yeah, like some of these guys will look. Yeah, like exactly. Monosyn- I've got, I've got the sniffle. So you and I have the, the ability because of our income. Okay. To basically take a week off work and, and, uh, and annoy, I know our, our, our colleagues basically and say, okay, you got to work. We've all had that phone call. I've done it to you. You've done it to me. We all do it to each other. But aside from that small little thing, we can go to, we, we don't have to go to work. So if I wake up tomorrow with a stuffy nose, I go, you know what? This could be COVID. Okay. Now when you're living paycheck to paycheck, okay. And you're supporting your parents and you're 40 some years old and you're living with eight other people in the house. Now you tell me how easy that decision is going to be for you to start thinking, you know, quote unquote, beyond yourself and start thinking about, you know, five, you know, uh, five generations of virus later. Yeah. Yeah. You're thinking about the food on your table. End of story. Right. Yeah. So I think it's very easy for us. Okay. Or a lot of people who, um, I mean, in Ottawa, let's face it, right? Like Ottawa is a government town. Ottawa is a high tech town. Ottawa doesn't have a massive public transit system. It's very spread out, but it's not, it's not like a, you know, Metro or it's not, you know, like a subway system like Montreal and Toronto are right. The, the amount of exposures that you get in, in, in an Ottawa setting, like we have a very protective effect in Ottawa, right? It's not all about us. Like, being better than people in Toronto or Peel at, at isolating or, yes. or, 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 or having some moral superiority. Um, and, you know, I'll extend that to my family who's out East, right? They're not somehow better at doing this stuff than we are to some degree. I mean, I think they're, to be honest with you, I think their, 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 their provincial leadership has been able to have a stronger kind of tighter border control kind of thing. But, but in essence, I don't think we're that much different. There's a lot of, there's a lot of luck in this. There's a lot of like Ottawa's lucky in the sense that we have a social demographic, whatever you want to call a workforce that is very protective, right? On the most part, we don't have massive manufacturing here, right? We had massive manufacturing here. We had, you know, situations like, for example, like in like Vaughn, like Peel, right? You're going to have a situations where, all of those little things build up and then they cause bigger events, right? You have a manufacturing plant with 400 people, right? If 50 people there get COVID and then they're all in multi-generational homes, as opposed to Sweden where there's 43% of people who live by themselves, then well, what ends up happening? Well, of course you're going to spread it to 20, 30% of the people you live with, depending on, you know, in a smaller home, smaller high rise, kind of like apartment building. And then all of a sudden, what ends up happening is boom, 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 it spreads, right? And, and just to reinforce that point too, Tom, like, so like, like you said, we get the sniffles, just, you know, just write this out with me for a second. We get the sniffles, we get tested right away. We tell, our, you tell your wife and your kids, we probably should stay home or whatever. And so when you think of the downward spread, secondary spread, right? Maybe your wife got it because, you know, you were living in the same quarters or whatever, assuming your marriage is going well. You know what I'm saying? Oh, it's, it's fantastic. <laughs> I'm married to the most lovely woman in the world, and yeah, you know that. Absolutely. Um, Julia, yeah, you could second that. Um, and then, <laughs> but like in that exact opposite scenario, when it's a multi-generational homes, the Amazon employee or factory worker, they're not getting tested. They're, it's propagated like that 
the wife easily could be in a, a similar situation where she's bringing it to, to, you know, if she's a personal support worker, or she's another essential worker, that spreads that way. And then the grandparents end up in the ICU or hospitalized because they're in that multi-generational home and it just propagates. It just propagates. And what it comes down to, people, this is why I get so frustrated with the Fordisms, the Elliotisms coming up and saying their thing, is because we are not addressing this at all. Everything you're talking about, schools, uh, masking outside, um, uh, borders, like, uh, like provincial borders and all that stuff, does not address this. Okay, and this is what's driving me nuts is that you are like, I forget these expressions, like I mix my metaphors all the time, banging your head against the rear view mirror. Um, <laughs> what are you? <laughs> Sorry, I need a bit of ouzo for that. No, it's water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, and, and, and this is it. And it's being met with judgment. You know, people are judging people saying, hey, this city's not doing their part. All these people are not doing their part. It is the nature of the beast. We haven't created a solution for them. Okay, oh, I just is, saw somebody yeah. even brought up on the, on the text about rapid testing. Can you explain to me, like I'm eight years old, why this bad boy is not, doesn't exist? Well, I think, I, think, I, think the, I think the problem with rapid testing, so rapid testing with regards to it, like I'm not Michael Mina, uh, who I follow uh, quite closely. He's an epidemiologist at uh, Harvard. Uh, and I tend to agree with him, right? I think, I think, in essence, the PCR test that we have right now is a phenomenal test, in my opinion, uh, for patients that we see who we need to know whether or not, we need to know whether or not that patient has COVID because it affects our treatment of that patient. Sure. Do we give you dexamethasone? Super sensitive. Right? It's, yeah, exactly. Super sensitive. For a hospitalized patient, yes. I yeah, 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 for a hospitalized patient. And, and I would argue nowadays, you know, with monoclonal antibody treatment, I mean, obviously it's the, the availability of that everywhere is different and yada, yada, okay. I, but, but I would say that um, in a lot of areas, uh, you know, it's important to know what you're dealing with. Are you dealing with uh, RSV? Are you dealing with influenza? Are you dealing with COVID? Okay. Um, but... I, where rapid test is, uh, where I see it uh, beneficial is to kind of in areas where you need to know whether or not you're infectious, right? So for your listeners in here, let's go over Mujcevic's kind of cur curve, right? Because this, this, is, this is very important because even a lot of people within healthcare who are incredible, uh, you know, uh, incredible people, um, are still in the mindset that the infectivity period sometimes is very different than what it really uh, what it really is, at least for the variants that you know uh, that we know about um, prior to that B one one seven. Okay, so um, basically we're most infectious pretty much one to two days before our symptoms, right around our our symptom where our symptoms start. Right, this is very different than SARS where it was like one week out. And this is why hospitalized uh, patients were transferring it to their doctors and, 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 um, uh, and healthcare workers. So the day or two before, like you don't even know that you're a symptom, like you don't even know you have COVID, right? Or I should say infected with SARS-CoV-2, but you understand what I mean. You don't have, you don't know that you have COVID and yet you're like half an hour before you get the sniffles, you are maximally infectious, okay? And then after you're, after you're basically, you get symptoms, 
then you're basically really infectious for about five days, right? And so, and then it goes down significantly until you're really not infectious 10 days after your symptoms. for people to understand that think about like the uphill battle we have right so think about your test and trace uphill battle that we have right mm -hmm. unless testing and tracing happens like very quickly and very well right in some parts of the u.s you were getting your test back like i did in in late march 14 days later like now it's not 14 days but let's say you're getting it five days later right you're supposed to isolate but then this person who wants to isolate is basically, you know, they go, they get their test, they isolate, but they're getting their, they're getting their test results four days later. Are they not going to work for four days? I mean, I understand the, the frustration when somebody goes to a bar right after that. Okay. I mean, you know, I'd have, you know, I'd have words with that guy too. Okay. <laughs> but, but the, the reality is, is that that's, that's, that's one person or that's two people that the vast majority of people who have this kind of issue are, are, are people who just need to make a living. Right. But I guess the way I see the rapid test personally, and I apologize because my wife was trying to contact me at the same time. Yes, Kathy, I'm doing this. Um, love you. Um, <laughs> is, and maybe you addressed this a, a bit ago, but the just on the asymptomatic, I, 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 I see it as a good asymptomatic tool. Do you know what I mean? Like, like prior to, because if you got symptoms, yes, go get your conventional PCR. Like it's easy. But if you're one of these factory workers or you're going into a long-term care facility and you get your antigen test prior to coming, to me, that makes a lot of sense. Well, the, the, you know, what Dr. Mina has talked about is the difference between a diagnostic test and to look at um, whether or not you are uh, infectious. Right. Um, and so... Because uh, PCR that, for sure is not going to tell you whether you're infectious or not no i mean you you could be 10 days out from a asymptomatic infection be pcr positive have rsv and then test positive right yeah you could um you 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 could you could have a uh you know you could have a situation where um where your pcr you're not very infectious whatsoever um your ct value is you know 40 or whatever really high so um, threshold the, yeah and and so uh, yeah, I mean, it's the, I love the, the, the PCR test is, is the gold standard that we have right now, right? That's as, that's as good as it gets. But I think the problem with the PCR test is that, it, like, there's only a certain amount of capacity, right? Um, and so if you're looking at, you know, if you're looking at, um, you know, we're not all the NHL, right? Where people can get a PCR test and find them like one day before they become symptomatic and get them off, off, the, off the ice basically a day before or two days before they could actually be infectious. Um, you know, that's not real life for most people. So, um, the worry I think is that traditionally the way, the way most regulatory bodies have kind of passed on, on these tests said yes or no has been, you know, their, their sensitivity, right. With regards to that. And they've been used mostly, mostly as a diagnostic test. Um, but, uh, you know, when is that threshold in society going to be to allow a few kind of you know, false negatives to, to, to go through um, in a situation where somebody may infect somebody else. I think sometimes perfect is the enemy of good. That's exactly it. This is exactly my point. You're not going to be perfect. And it's better than what we're doing now. Like, like right uh, now, right now we're flying off. Like, so just look at what we're doing now. Right now, people are doing temperature checks, right? So you and I know 
that temperature checks, in my opinion, mean mean almost absolutely nothing. They mean nothing. I nothing. think they, I think even um, I can't remember what paper I'm I'm thinking of, but fevers were actually way less of a symptom than you think. It was like I can't remember like even myalgias was ahead of fever. Oh, like, I read somewhere where somebody was said, you know, just smell a smell a flower as a test before you go into a store. But and yeah, if you can smell it. That's got to be ultra specific though. No, but, <laughs> like, but you understand what I'm trying yeah, to say, right? Like, yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is where we're at right now is the honor system, right? So my kid, two of my sons, I know I've said this before, play hockey, right? So they have great protocols, but they're, I mean, they, they, they do as well as they can, right? It can't be perfect because what you're getting at is you're looking at a symptom screen protocol. So have you been out of the country? Do you have this? Do you have this? But again, if you're talking about a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old child, many of them are asymptomatic. Right. So, so if you were to say they, they, they were going to go into a dressing room with somebody else for 30 minutes of prolonged contact, then you need barriers, masks, da, 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 da. But if you're, the whole point of that screening questionnaire is to try and limit your exposure to come into a setting, whether it's workplace, whether it's sporting, whether or not it's audience, whether or not it's anything, right? School, which is the highest up on my list. If you can, uh, if you can have a rapid screening test, that actually is is added to that, right? I can't see how that could be worse than our baseline. Of course not. And uh, and it'll pick up really- students. It'll pick up students or participants that have that are infectious. No matter what. So if you're if you have enough of a viral load, there's lots of studies that show this, by the way. I mean, you know, and if you have a high enough a viral load or low enough CT on a PCR, it will pick up the the rapid antigen will pick it up yeah we can we can say if we if we put up our ct up really high which we will see in the icu as a positive test perhaps a rapid antigen test will say will, will not pick it up yeah the argument is that you're not as infectious okay and there's there's people on both sides of that maybe it gives us a false sense of security but look at what we have right now right so what we have right now is do you have a cold do you have the sniffles do you have a fever and you have a change in your in, in taste. That's basically like if you answer no to all of them, in you go, right? Yeah. So why not do that and uh, you know a rapid test? Yeah. It's because I, perhaps it's legal. Perhaps it's the fact that you know again, perfect is the enemy of good. That that one person that you can show that passed through your screening. Well, now you can say, well, you didn't really screen properly. And, you know, the moral is the moralism side, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas before now, it's, it's a problem with a governmental approach. It's a problem with. And so then it may, might add a whole bunch of things. I don't subscribe to the point that it is a situation whereby we should scrap it just because, you know, uh, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. And, 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 and I know Canada's, they're, they're really trying. Like I've, I've read through Health Canada's. I'm not trying, like, I've, I've actually read through their whole, like, guidelines on this where there's, like, backup PCR testing and things like that, and they're, they're, they're trialing it at multiple different places. It's just that, you know, in pandemics, like uh, Dr. Ryan said, right, uh, with the World Health Organization, sometimes acting faster is better than, you know, taking your time with regards to some things. And I, Preach, yeah, I think- boy. I think I think vaccines and things like that you got to be really careful and I think we've they've done a great job because I think you know we have to basically make sure that people trust in the process and stuff like that but when the only thing that we have right now is a questionnaire right 
and the tests actually are, look pretty good with regards to rapid antigen testing. The, what, the ones that I read, I mean, it came out of Abbott. It was like press release. The sensitivity and specificity were like ultra high, like in the like so, 98, 99. Yeah, so they're very high depending on, again, depending on what you're looking at, the CT thresholds. If you're going to compare it to PCR, where you know where you have just a little bit of virus that you're amplifying, then they're not going to be as good. So that, that's... I, I will still just go. I don't want to bore people, but like yeah. the other thing that, I saw, that I've read clearly, well, I shouldn't say clearly, is from a, a couple of these virology um, uh, journals was that if the threshold is that high, the likelihood that they're viable or infectious is low. You know right. what I'm saying? And yes, you don't want to miss out this shit. But um, in the era where we're pretty much treating everybody like they have COVID regardless in hospital, I, 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 you do wonder where, um, would there be that much of a downside to introducing uh, rapid testing? And I, I personally, straight up, just because I'm a bit on the pragmatic side, I don't see the issue. Like, I see the issue, but I don't see the issue. No, from a public, from a public health standpoint, uh, I think it would be if, if, if uh, you know, if... Again, you know, I'm not an expert at this, but obviously I have medical knowledge and I know how to read journals and, you know, I, I listen to multiple different, uh, you know, opinions on this. I'm on the side of if somehow, you know, people could do two or three tests a week because they were scaled economically that it would take you 10 minutes in the morning while you're brushing your teeth or what have you. Just look at a target population like schools, for example, right? Yeah. Then I think, then I think you pick your target population where it's very, very important. Um, and you trial it like that. I think if you can kind of do it to, to that effect, but we just don't have the, it's not scaled economically so that, that it costs a dollar a day, right? It, right now it would, it would be. Uh, well, I read anywhere from five to 15 is the range I've seen. I yeah. And even in the U S too, there's actually an at home test right now that I forget the name of it. Yeah. It starts with an EEL something, but um, yeah. th that's actually approved by the FDA. Yeah. But anyways, Boom. I don't want to get up too, too much off topic, but that's where we might be like, uh, you know, later. You better be. Oh, the other thing I think we should touch on, um, just to get to solutions, because once again, you know, long-term care is an issue. Um, but luckily, we've been able to vaccinate some of our, like, actually, a good portion of long-term care associated people. Um, and, and surprisingly, the what I was reading and hearing about some colleagues that like up to 50% of long-term care staff were saying like, mm, I'm not ready for that vaccine, which I, I was actually quite shocked at. Uh, but my question for you is when you think about who should be getting it next, you know what I mean? Like what oh, comes man. to mind off your, the top of your mind grapes? Me? Age. Yeah. Age, 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 age. Yeah. That's, I mean, it's, it, it's three letter age. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't even think you were going to ask me this question. And it just like, I mean, this, this comes out very easily to me. If, if, you know, we're, we're seeing right now, I mean, I think the first part of vaccine rollouts actually from an ethical standpoint in Canada is actually being quite easy. I mean, of course I follow Twitter and I know that there's been, you know, there's there, over the last couple of days, there's been some concerns, but which I'm not going to get into right now. Um, it's it's obviously hard to to go through that. And I've even volunteered with uh, Ottawa Public Health with regards to whenever I'm not in the ICU the next month, which will probably be never because I'll probably be there all the time. Um, uh, but you know, to, to, to vaccinate, I'm saying. But the issue is going to be the, the harder part is going to be the second phase, 
right? The fire department is going to be March, April, well, whenever the first kind of phase uh, rolls out. Um, the U.S. right now, in my opinion, from an ethical standpoint, is a monumental failure with regards to vaccine distribution, right? So I'll go on record saying that I have no problem saying that, in my opinion. Um, and so I hope we don't follow their lead, which is, you know, uh, money and influence uh, creates opportunities where it shouldn't. I think the next situation would be where can you make a biggest dent in the morbidity and mortality of this awful disease, right? And if you look at anything, I know we've talked about comorbidities like diabetes and we've looked at um, a whole bunch of other health factors, cardiovascular disease, um, but the, the number one predictor, no matter how you look at it, is it, with regards to a differential factor from very low morbidity, right? So in children, right? So if I found out that one of my children had COVID, I'd be like, okay, right? Yeah. Like they have the flu, they have RSV. I'm talking about my nine, 10 year old kid. Okay. I'm not talking on one of your comments, please kid. about like a 35 year old. I get it. It's worse. Uh, COVID's worse for a 35 year old than the flu is. I get it. But I'm talking about a, a nine or 10 year old kid. We all know the data. We all know the Swedish data, you know, no deaths, like, you know, in, during school. We, I mean, I don't want to get into all that. Right. Yeah. But once you start getting into like 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, it's a logarithmic jump, right? Like it's like every decade, just like, it, it's not a, it's not a linear curve with regards to mortality. So if you, if you, I mean, conceive, I mean, we've seen patients conceivably, they're living at home at 90, right? They're not in long-term care. They're not in a retirement home. They drive their car. You go vaccinate that person ASAP, right? You vaccinate the, uh, the person who's in their eighties. The problem will be, how do you tease that out? Like, how's it actually going to work, right? How, is it going to, is it going to be like, okay, family docs are going to look at this or public health is going to have a record of everybody who's, you know, 80 and above. Again, you don't want perfect to be the enemy of good, right? But if, if it was up to me, I would say, hey, buddy, I would say uh, age Hello. is the number one thing. What's up, buddy? It's a little bit more, buddy. And then close the door, too. Hello, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Yeah, that's Tom. Fantastic. My name's Tom. Oh, hi, what's, Tom. What, what's your name? Marlo. Marlo! Marlo's very happy. He's jumpy. I love it. <laughs> this is it. <laughs> Peace, brother. Hey, can you close the door? Sweet, sweet, sweet boo. Thanks, buddy. So I don't know if you agree with me, but I think age is uh, huge, huge on the list. Yeah, without a doubt, age. I and there is a practical aspect to this that I I wonder about. Like, I still think the. 70 year old that is not on any medication compared to the 58 year old that is diabetic and hypertensive and obese is worse off. Um, but at a practical level, I don't know if you could really hammer that out in terms of attacking the people with the comorbidities first. So if, I mean, once again, we talked about perfect is the enemy of good. I, I would definitely be able to live with going from age downward. You know what I'm saying? Um, well, let's let's look at it another way, right? So Canada just uh, signed off on another twenty, you know, with their contract with Pfizer, right? And initially, they they have up to I believe seventy three or seventy eight million, right, total doses that they that in their initial contract, and so they have a clause that they can buy another twenty million. So they opted in on that clause today. So 
they're getting another 20 million. So 20 million should be from five, they should get 20 million between April and June, okay? Let's say Johnson & Johnson comes back with, uh, with EAU, so emergency use authorization. Um, and, and uh, you know, uh, you know my, when I looked at the phase two data of Novavax, I was blown away, right? So, but we know phase two doesn't look like phase three all the time, right? And Canada has procured for Novavax too. Somewhere along the line, the, uh, the best case scenario, I would say even a reasonably scenario would be that we actually don't have to start, you know, prioritizing as much as we had in the first phase, like first versus second phase. My hope is that it's going to be more of a logistical and bureaucratic problem as opposed to an ethical problem. You see what I'm saying? Like, I, I think if you, if you have 10 million vaccines within a three month, sorry, 20 million vaccines within a three month period, and you can vaccinate 10 million people, and Novavax, by the way, is a one-shot vaccine, right? Again, Novavax will probably get we'll EAU yeah, in the US yeah. by around April if they do get it, okay? Yeah. So let's say that that, that that does happen. The reality is, is that uh, I think it's more of a bureaucratic slash boots on the ground kind of like uh, logistical problem as opposed to otherwise. The more, va- I was really happy to hear that today. So the more vaccines we have, earlier on, and I bet you we'll probably even get more and more. The reality is, is that that whole kind of, okay, we're going to deal with 70 to 75 now. I don't think it's going to be as much of a, of an issue just because of the fact that I think you'll be able to be like, okay, everybody above 65, for example, or everybody above 60. And, and then you get those comorbidities because it's very hard to tease out. Like people yeah. say, well, my diabetes is more important than, yeah. than your hypertension. And I mean that, you know, that, that I, I, I respect that from people. And it's a really hard situation. I've had to deal with chronic illness myself for 45 years in certain parts of my life. So I I understand it, but the reality is, is that how are you going to tease that out? Right. That's exactly what I, I, like I'm with you there. The reason I though I, I do think it's worth the discussion is because this wave and we see the projections which is another topic by the way these projections for ontario of catastrophic amounts of intensive care needs and so forth and so like you know if we could vaccinate our our most vulnerable amplify that you know or or be it somewhat targeted maybe that um reduces the the need for intensive care and for hospitalizations I do think it is a bit of a pipe dream to to be that targeted, but um, here's my question for you: When you hear those uh, projections, I got asked this several mm-hmm. times today. What what comes to mind when you see that you know our ICUs looks like we're going to be overrun and so forth? Uh, what comes to mind is uh, in you're probably not expecting this answer. It, 2003. What comes to mind is SARS. What comes to mind is the SARS report. And what comes to mind is um, governments in the past cutting healthcare. Mm. That's what comes to mind. Um, I'm going to talk less about the modeling because I'm not an expert in modeling. There's a lot of bad models. There's a lot of pretty good models. I have a lot of respect out of, out of um, U of T's kind of epidemiology from what the, for the way they they you know they they carried themselves with regards to how they're modeling and 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 so forth. I I, I respect that. And there's a lot of good people working there. The issue that I would say is this: is you know in economics you always think of supply demand, right? And so we have 14 and a half million people with 2,000 ICU beds, right? And so I don't I don't blame this 
government. I don't blame any particular government. I'm not in the, I'm not in the game of blaming people. Um, but I think that when we get over this, we really have to look really hard in the mirror for one thing. We as a country strongly believe in a universal single payer health system, right? But we also don't like high taxes and we also don't like certain things, right? I'm not saying I want to be taxed more. Okay. I'm not saying that. But what I'm trying to say is that every reaction has a, you know, every action has a, you know, a, an effective reaction. What I'm trying to say is that in 2003, when SARS came out, we had a lot of uh, recommendations afterwards and successive governments have made it harder and harder for hospitals to exist to, to a certain degree. Right. I mean, you need capital, you need funding. Right. And I think some governments have been very, uh, very responsive to certain local needs. Absolutely. hundred percent. But I think we as a society have to make decisions to say, okay, if we want a single taxpayer, like a sing, single, single payer universal healthcare system, it can't, crumble with up uh, with 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 pandemics right because pandemics are going to happen i'm not sure this is a one in a 100 year kind of scenario anymore right we have 8 billion people in the world and we travel by airplanes and so we're encroaching on you know you know other mammalian territories there's going to be there's going to be a jump of, of, of viruses and at some point it's like playing the lottery and you're going to lose sometimes and this is what's happened this time we have the perfect combination of transmissibility and infection fatality rate. The infection fatality rate of this was 30%. We'd all be hunkered down. You know what I mean? It's at that, it's at, it's at that margin where, you know, people can take it seriously and other people don't want to take it as seriously. And, and it really complicates society. All I'm trying to say when I see those models, I'll answer it in two ways is number one, I think we have to be very well prepared for the next pandemic. Whenever that hits in essence, have a backup plan when it comes to capacity, right? And we start thinking about it right now, right? Just like we have an army, just like we have, you know what I mean? Like armies don't go and fight every single day, but they prepare for that, right? It's basically taken Western countries and brought them to their knees, literally, right? Like it's decreased our GDP. It's decreased our quality of life by a substantial amount. And we're all doing this to try and protect our healthcare structure. And there's a ton of, like, everybody's trying their best. CEOs, hospitals, you know, admin, docs, nurses, everybody, everybody's trying their best. But we have to have a serious discussion after this and say, how did we get to a place in Western society where a pandemic brought, is, 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 it's bringing like, for example, now in, in the healthcare in, in the UK, it's, it's literally stretching it to its absolute maximum. Right. And so then, then what we don't want to see on our TV screens is people making life and death decisions. I mean, I know we make life and death decisions all the time at the end of CPR and, and things like that, but that, but it's not the same as, as saying, okay, we don't have oxygen. Like we're not used to that in Western, right? Like, we're not used to we're not used to making those decisions, right? And so we have to kind of prepare for worst case scenarios, right? And I think that that costs money. That causes that we have to make decisions about where we're gonna where we're gonna take money away from to put money into this, 
because we have to be prepared next time so that that doesn't it doesn't put us into like a situation like we're we're put into now. So what we're trying to do is basically save our healthcare system from collapsing. That's what we're trying to do. Now, are we going to get to that that point? You know what? I actually believe that we're in a situation where things might get bad. Um, I, 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 I'm, you know, like I, I look at that modeling you, and you think like on t you, when you're saying bad, you mean Ontario in general or local? Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think, you know, I think, I think, I think politicians, I think, um, you know, epidemiologists, uh, public health policy, um, analysts, I mean, people who are making decisions right now are in a, in a tough situation because, you know, you and I are going to be working our tail ends off for the next two months, in my opinion. But I think, um, I think that it's very indeed uh, possible. I mean, I looked at the percent rise, whether or not it's 3%, you know, per day on average. Hopefully, hopefully this will be mitigated. We talked about all the factors that go into it. Um, but could we get there? Absolutely, we can get there, in my opinion, right? Like we're at 400 and some beds, let's say 410 beds right now in the ICUs across Ontario. I think one of the one of the factors that we we haven't played into this, which I think England, I, I think the UK, I apologize. So I think the UK has 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 seen is that exponential growth. The human mind doesn't can't comprehend exponential growth. Neither can my mind. It's starting to get better at it. But I'll, I'll put it like this for 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 anybody who uh, I'm just trying to explain exponential growth in the context of it's like a it's like a locomotive, right? It looks like it's going okay. It's going okay. Okay, it's a big freight train. It's starting, it's starting, it's starting. And then if you kind of put the brakes on it early, it can stop, right? But then once it picks up steam, it's really hard to stop, right? And so this is what we're seeing with this. And we've seen this in Ottawa too, right? Like we were doing really, really well, right? And then all of a sudden, you know, we were open and open and stuff like that. And then and then it just kind of started taking off. And then here we are now, right? In Ottawa, it's not, it's not anywhere near Peel or Niagara region or, you know, but we're definitely at, you know, about a hundred cases per hundred thousand per, you know, per hundred thousand per week. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it's one of those things where I think exponential growth has, has made a lot of people like, like me kind of look silly when I've been trying to kind of navigate my way around, questions about whether or not we're going to end up somewhere or not right the problem is you could be at 20 percent capacity and then in about four weeks be at 120 percent capacity yeah that's yeah. the pro that's the problem with trying to model these things yeah and i yeah i have similar to what you're saying like respect for where the numbers could go you know we've seen my skepticism has always been and we've we've seen these we've seen these forecasts before yeah, and sometimes the 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 less aggressive stuff at times could be accurate. The more aggressive stuff, as in my opinion, we've yet to see. But you know, you got to prepare for the worst. And um, doesn't mean you can't be positive in the sense like that. You be, like it doesn't mean you can't kind of rally the troops and be positive and kind of like try to look at the you know to. I mean, we can't all live in a sphere of negativity every single day. I mean, I'm not tone deaf, right? Like uh, there's, there's people that I know who've suffered. I've suffered through different things, nowhere near, you know, uh, but you know, we've all had our trials and tribulations and I'm not trying to be tone deaf. I'm just trying to say, I think it's important to, 
try and get some, like if I went to work every single day feeling completely overwhelmed, I got to take care of my mental health too, right? I got to be there for people. Yeah. I don't know if you're understanding where I'm kind of going with this. No, right? no, 100%. This, you is know, my, like, this is my mantra. This is my mantra. This is why you got to... Nobody wants to see me intubate them where I'm, when, when I'm, when I'm, you know, when, when I'm like in tears every single day. Yeah, just, you got you to have your game face on. I do. Because you know, well, I know the next two months are, might be really hard. Yeah. And so you could give your best care possible. It's like, Absolutely. This is, this is why... I mean, this is why I always, you know, try and stay on the positive tip and uh, give that positive energy so we can stay productive. And, but, you know, I, I would say this, you know, in terms of the, the, um, the modeling, the, the one thing I hope, and I'm not saying this is going to be a factor, but I'm hoping will be a factor is that if we're not too far on that locomotive train, the fact that Christmas is now done, the fact that, uh, we're vaccinating our most our most vulnerable. I'm hoping that takes a dip into this, and you know the the, the coyote might be out of the barn already, but um, but certainly you know I, I would hope that all these some of these subtle things could could uh, can have an impact. I'm hoping. So I think I think you have uh, I don't think you have uh, uh, unintended positivity. I think I think your positivity in the context of the way things are lining up with respect to vaccinations is um, uh, I, I hope you're right, and I'll tell you why. Because I think come mid February, perhaps uh, the way I kind of read the tea leaves with regards to vaccination, if we can get most high risk long-term care this is where 70 75 percent of, of of the deaths are within ontario right yeah. if we can get uh i mean i'm talking about congregate living centers and, and the whole bit if we can get high risk uh long-term care retirement homes um if we can get everybody vaccinated in that con construct if you look at the vaccines they really start working first dose. I don't want to get into a lot of specifics, but first dose starts working around 10 to 12 days, right. right? And my suspicion is you're going to get very, 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 very little bit of uh, severe disease after that, right? Second dose comes in, you get an efficacy seven days later in the studies of like 95% with both messenger RNA vaccines, right? If you can take the population that ends up in, like, not just in hospital, but mortality-wise, right? Because yeah. we know a lot of patients with their, their, their predetermined goals of care who are in nursing homes, I mean, long-term care homes, don't want to be transferred to hospitals, some of them. Some of them are in a stage of their life where legitimately, you know, if something significant like COVID happens they, and, and they get respiratory failure, they don't want to be intubated and, and end up in an ICU, and, and that we have to respect. I think in the context of biggest bang for your buck with that which is, is, to, is to vaccinate uh, all our loved ones in long-term care homes, that brings the mortality and the morbidity of the disease down. Are we going to see people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 40s, 30s, maybe in the ICU? Yeah, but statistically less and less and less. So, you're gonna ha so I think what's going to happen is, you know, winter, right? I mean, winter hit is, is hitting all of, West, all of the Northern Hemisphere hard. I don't think you have to look at just variants. I think just the fact that September came around was an eye opener to a lot of people who felt that they were out of the woods, right? And then now that we have vaccinations, thank goodness, we thought vaccinations were, might never come, right? Remember those yep. those kind of you know conversations that we had. So we have to also kind of look at things and say, yeah, we're, we're lucky. I mean, this is one year, like uh, like 
you know, pharma's come, come to our rescue, awesome. right? And the combination of that, the combination of, um, uh, you know, the effect of, of, of limiting um, interactions at this point in time with uh, governmental um, actions, and, and the fact that March and April are, are coming, I think are going to, yeah. hopefully, I think we're going to see our peak of morbidity, mortality in, in, in February. I don't think we're going to see our peak in March. Um, now with the variant, I mean, who knows, but I also think that weather plays a, a huge behavioral role, um, and likely, a, likely a biological one too. Um, but I'll let the smarter biologists and virologists weigh in on that. Well, I mean, even more reason for the vaccine too, if, you know, we do get more of the variant that seem to be more contagious, Absolutely. um, uh, and, but from early studies show that the vaccines should be able to combat the, the new variant. So yeah. And we have to be careful, right? Like this is the one thing we have to be careful because we've never studied a virus like this one. Right. So like we, like, it's not also psychologically helpful to think that every single time somebody's going to put out a variant that the vaccine's not going to work. Right. Yeah. You know, I think, I, I think people have to be, cause the, like we have to go under the notion that the vaccine is going to work. And, and every study, I just saw neutralization titer assays that, that were done with the B117 variant and the, and the variant from, from South, from Africa. South Africa and, yeah. and they're fine. It, they were just fine. So, you know, I, everything, just reading virologists, the vast majority think that it's going to take years if to have mutations that are going to bypass natural immunity or vaccine related immunity that we have now with messenger RNA vaccines. Uh, or with the, um, you know, recombinant protein ones that hopefully are coming down. But the reality is, is that, is that I think it's also dangerous mentally to think that every single time you read a newspaper article, you're going to think, oh my God, if I, I got vaccinated, it's not going to work. Well, when you got the premiere going on saying this new deadly strain is coming at you, like it's not, it's not helping dog. It, it, it ain't helping. Listen, let's, uh, let me thank you for making this happen. This is very therapeutic for me. Uh, this was a bit selfish because uh, I just, to me, it was just a very frustrating day knowing that, you know, we were going into further restrictions and not getting to root causes. Not really. Is there dealing. a billing code for this? Yeah, it's a, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but uh, listen, no, I really appreciate this because, you know, like the thing I, and we've said this before, the thing I appreciate is, believe it or not, people, we, disagree with a reasonable amount of stuff but we we agree to have it in a civil manner we'll agree to disagree at different times and we embrace being able to have that dialogue is is what we need and this is what we need in medicine this is what we need in society to move forward honest discussions you know what Can I'm i saying? say something about that yeah yeah you have time yeah. so one of the things that that i've seen um on social media, right? Because uh, I think this is a, this is our biggest problem in society, in my opinion, right now, with regards to civil cohesion and stuff like that. Is that, you know, when you, what's happening right now with even, you know, there's advocacy which I commend, right? I think advocacy is important, but I think empathy and scientific discussion is also important. And I think we have to set ourselves apart 
with regards to like you, you and I are friends, but we do have significant disagreements, right? Like I don't see modeling perhaps as like you do, like, you know, I, I like, I actually think this, this lockdown might work. I, I, I understand, I understand the, the notion of, you know, um, you know, um, you know, marginalized community. Like, I mean, like, I, I, I fight for that. Like I, not as much as, you know, a Dr. Turnbull would or what have you. They're, they're, they're just, you know, incredible at that. But, but I have a lot of empathy for these kind of situations. And I, I, I recognize them as the, the main issue in this situation. That being said, I respect your opinion and I see the good that you've been doing in a lot of different ways. What we're missing right now in medicine, in my opinion, when it comes to COVID is that advocacy sometimes becomes um, legitimate siloing. And so when somebody else, for example, might say, uh, for example, uh, kids in school, when somebody brings up the fact that a child who comes from uh, a situation that they live in poverty, right, will may never, if, if this continues for two years, I mean, who knows, right? Like if we didn't have a vaccine, might never be able to take the same steps as somebody who lives in a middle income or can do pods like in the US or can do can have a Mac at home and have great Wi-Fi and a, a, and a parent who can help them through school. If we can't have that discussion and say, there are risks and benefits to policy decisions we make, right? And they don't all have to be counted with a COVID lens, right? That sometimes we can say, look, there's a lot of kids who are going to have child abuse. There's a lot of kids who are going to have issues with regards to furthering their education, which actually does cause problems in their life afterwards. They're just not going to be able, statisticians right now are not going to be able to measure that right now, but we will be able to measure increased cancer deaths two years from now or three years from now, or decreased ability to get uh, good employment, you know, 10 years from now. And I'm not saying I have the answers to that, but we should be able to talk to one another about that rather than kind of block and say, okay, this, and then, okay, I don't want to talk to you anymore and those kind of things. And this is what's happening, I think, in the sphere of these discussions where I feel people are um, kind of siloing each other. Um, and that, to me, as a scientist, and as somebody who's tried to keep an open mind to, to everything, uh, hurts. And I, I make no apology for, for that. Um, I think if I disagree with somebody, I haven't been perfect at it, but I tried and I try my best and I'll apologize if I ever siloed anyone because of that. Reach. And you got, and like, how many times have we all been wrong? <laughs> you know what I mean? Humbled in real life. And when it comes to, COVID when it comes to like, so we got to stay humble. We got to stay open-minded and we got to have an ability to be, to have dialogue and not be siloed. That was a perfect way to end this bad boy. Thank you, everybody. Um, I'm doing a proper, out, uh, pro proper outro here. Cause um, we're going to post this. I'm going to try and post it to, uh, for tomorrow actually. And so if you uh, dig what you, what you've been doing on the show, leave a, uh, leave a rating on uh, iTunes or Spotify. It helps with the visibility of the show. Comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. It'll, we love hearing from you. And we're going to continue to change that boogie. You know what I'm saying? Advocate for those that can't. 
advocate for themselves and, and just, you know, st- continue that dialogue and transforming healthcare for real. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying, TP? Oh, I know, I know. Hey, did you, and I told you, did you notice my, my daughter put a mask on Grogu? <laughs> you, I was all over that the whole time. I was, that's who I've, I've been eyeing. <laughs> He's eyeing you. May the force be with thy? Yeah, sure. Did I get that right? No. <laughs> you, thy? Thy. All right, guys. Thanks so much.